Hi, I just want to explain this episode really quick. This is just a bonus episode. It's not in place of a regular episode. Yesterday, I did a live stream where I answered questions that were sent in. I talked about this year, my thoughts on podcasting, a little bit about my life, things that you might be interested in knowing. I did clean up the track. I took out the points where in the live stream, I'm just saying hi to people as they say hi to me. I took out a lot of ums. I just cleaned up the track for you folks to listen to. So I hope you like it and I'll be back on Monday with a regular episode. Last year, I did a year in review recap, which was kind of a little bit more of a tumultuous year in 2019 because Insight had ended and then I started Crime Lines. And so there was a little bit more up and down to talk about. So this year was up and down in different ways. And it actually started off really amazing. But then obviously for me and the rest of the world, it kind of nosedived a bit. It's been rough for a lot of the reasons. It's been rough for everyone else. I went back and I listened to last year's Out With Old and With The New episode, and it was kind of funny because there were a few things I mentioned in there that (laughs) 2020 was like, no, thank you. One was that I wasn't going to do as much freelance work because my husband was going to be traveling more for work, which obviously he didn't do. He's actually working from home now, full-time, all the time, never leaves. But it ended up being a good thing that I decreased my freelance work anyway, because then I ended up with this hybrid homeschool thing that we're doing, the virtual school, so I wouldn't have been able to keep up with it anyway. I mean, my kids came home from spring break, and they haven't been back to school, so that worked out. Another thing I mentioned was that I'm sure 2020 will throw some curveballs at us, but, you know, that was an understatement. I did mention last year that I was hiring researchers and an audio editor who were all talented freelancers. They mostly all had experience specifically with podcasting. And that also kind of went out the window because ad revenue really tanked during the pandemic. You know, downloads dropped with people not commuting to work, people not wanting to listen to depressing podcasts on top of depressing news. So that affected it. But also companies weren't advertising as much because people weren't buying as much. So my ad revenue went really down. And then the company that booked my ads from April to July just simply decided not to pay me. They still haven't paid me. That's been fun. That's something I've been uh, <laughs> been pursuing, will pursue with a little more vigor after the new year. And I wasn't, I just simply couldn't pay for nearly as much help as I had planned. And I do want to say a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters because financially speaking, that's what kept the show afloat and did allow me to pay for some research. I, d- I started read, started doing all my editing myself again, as far as editing the audio which I'll continue doing. It's not a big deal. But being able to pay for research packets to at least get me started on episodes really saves me a whole lot of time. And I was able to still pay for some of that through the Patreon contributions, which let me keep the show weekly. I I mean, I don't think I could have kept the show weekly without that. But in that 2019 episode, end of 2019, 
I did say one thing that turned out to be very true, and that is that I was going to focus on creating content in 2020, and that's exactly what I did. Most episodes this year were made without any help. So from all the research, all the writing, recording, obviously, you guys can hear that I'm the only one who records, and all the editing, all the pushing, the social media, everything was done by me, by myself. And, you know, I love doing that. It was really nice to get back to the basics of just being an indie show, being a a one-person machine over here. And, you know, I'm going to keep using researchers here and there to help because it really does let me keep the show weekly, even when things happen, like when the daycare gets put in quarantine and now I have a three-year-old home all day. I really, you know, those research packets really help. So I do have some of those coming in next year that I just kind of will stock away for when I need them. But the other thing that I added this year were these live streams. These will continue into 2021. Someone asked me recently, I won't name them. (laughs) They were thinking about getting into live streams for podcasts and was asking me what the benefit was. Like, what am I getting from it? Am, is it bringing in another way to monetize the show? Am I getting more downloads to the podcast because I'm getting my name out there more? And like literally none of that happened. The Like 100% these are fun. Yeah, there's a possibility to monetize these. Get Vocal does have a feature like the YouTube Super Chat. If you've ever done YouTube live streams or seen those, you can send a Super Chat and it lets your, it, you basically pay and then it shows the person that you gave them a tip. It's like a tip jar. Let's just simplify it. And, you know, I have gotten a couple, and I really do appreciate that. But even if I didn't make any more money from the live streams, and even if, like, all it is is, I mean, we have 20 people, like, we have, like, 25, 30 people. If that's really all I'm hanging out with in these live streams, it's fine. I love it. I've really enjoyed this, especially as an extrovert in the pandemic and trying not to go out more than I need to, things being closed, being careful with my friends. I mean, it's really great that I can actually sit down and hang out with people, even if it's kind of like this weird me talking (laughs) at you and then you commenting and I read your comment. It's weird. Um, I'd love to figure out some way to do like a Zoom thing where we can all be on the screen and have like actual conversations. I don't know how to facilitate stuff like that, but I mean, that's the kind of thing I would I would like to do something even more personal going forward. But in the meantime, these are pretty easy. Not even, I mean, they take me like a, a bit to prepare, but they're fun and I like doing them. I am going to try maybe to mix them up a little bit, maybe have other podcasters on. But I do like doing case presentations. I'll kind of alternating between themes or, you know, like the creepy Christmas and Halloween ones and then also doing current events. So I I like kind of alternating between those. I have a listener who sent me in a story about someone who had been possibly like assaulted on an Amtrak train, but the official version is that he tried to jump from the train himself. I was looking into it and I realized there are a bunch of weird Amtrak train cases of people going missing from the trains, being found dead along the train tracks after they like somehow got off the train and nobody knows how. So I think I'm going to do an Amtrak train one just to kind of get all those stories together. Going forward into 2021, the focus is going to stay the same. I'm just going to keep creating content. 
it's what I want to do. I don't like marketing the show. I don't, I don't like trying to get noticed by journalists and groups giving awards and it, like promoting myself. It's really not me. I'm not uncomfortable with it in the sense that I'm like, oh, no, my show's not that great. I think my show's really great. So I'm making the show I would want to listen to. But what I, I like doing is I like making the show and I like spending my time reading those research articles so that I can then give you two lines <laughs> of information, but two lines that I know are going to be correct because I read the research study and I know the sample size and I know what they controlled for. And I can tell you that what I read sounds good. It sounds accurate. And so maybe, maybe I spend an hour reading something that will give me two lines of content, but it's two lines of good content. And that's totally worth it for me. And I don't want to get distracted from that. So I do appreciate all the listeners who are kind of my PR team who, you know, will post about episodes on social media or recommend the show to their friends because uh, you guys are the ones who actually are, <laughs> are doing that because I'm not. And I appreciate it. And if you're not following me on social media, just search Crime Lines or Crime Lines Podcast. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And social media is actually one of the parts of podcasting that's not directly related to the podcast creation that I like because I like interacting with people. Mentioned I'm an extrovert before. So, I mean, this year I kind of stopped doing the parts of podcasting I don't like and only focused on what I do like and and keep doing that because it's working out so far. To some degree, when you monetize a hobby, it's like, oh no, it's a business and now you're going to lose the thing that make, made you love it, made you love it as a hobby, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, oh look, I have a hobby that happens to pay me some money. That's great. If it pays me more money, that's also great. If it pays me less, I will find a way to survive. This is my hobby and I love it and I'm really glad that other people do too. You know, like basically where I am with the show right now, I created content this year. I'm going to create content next year. Uh, I do like to pull away the curtain a bit with podcasting because, you know, I'd like to explain how things work and why things work. And, you know, I try to be very transparent on that. I think that's a barrier for people to get into podcasting as a hobby, as a career, as whatever, is not understanding how it works. And it seems kind of overwhelming. Like when I started podcasting, I had to search how to start a podcast. I had absolutely no idea about hosting microphones. I had to teach myself using YouTube tutorials how to edit audio. I'm even I'm not that great at it. I have some plugins that kind of make me look like I'm better at it than I am. There's just there's a lot that that goes into podcasting, but it's all very simple, come step by step. And so if I can pull back the curtain to encourage other people to get into it or to understand what's happening when they listen to a podcast, and let's say that podcast goes exclusive on Spotify. It, I mean, it kind of feels like, oh, so you're abandoning your audience who's not on Spotify. But on the other hand, Spotify can give that podcaster a lot more resources to expand and do things beyond the podcast. And that might be what they want. By being transparent, I hope I can help people understand where their favorite podcasters are coming from and maybe understand why they're making decisions they are with their show. So I'm going to go ahead and read some comments before I get to the questions that were sent in. We need to get you all the money. Yes, Susie, I would not mind all the money, but um, yeah, I'm not as money motivated as some people out there. I don't know. Luckily for me, I kind of don't have to be 
before I started podcasting, I was homeschooling my kids, which actually costs money, doesn't make money. So we've always lived on the on the budget of one income. And so having a second income is great. I'm not going to say no to it, but we've already budgeted our lives to not have it. So I'm very fortunate in that way. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who are monetized podcasts who are have made it in the sense that they are like supporting themselves, they're supporting their families on their podcast income, and that's amazing. Um, Simon says, your show is more than great. It's amazing. Don't think I've missed a single episode, even from the Insight Days. Thank you, Simon. Liz has also been listening since Insight. Thank you for making my favorite podcast. I really love that people who listened to Insight and enjoyed it still enjoy Crime Lines because, I mean, there has been a shift. Some of it was very—I mean, the big shift, obviously, is I went from co-host to one host. That was, like, the really big shift with the show. There have been little shifts as it goes where I'm kind of, I don't know, kind of moving away from exactly how things were done on Insight a little bit, especially around a couple months in, more of my personality got into the scripts, whereas with Insight being two hosts, it's kind of hard to write personality in because you didn't necessarily know when you were writing it who was going to have which part. So it was, I mean, it was just a different process. I learned so much, um, and I really... I think having the freedom to just kind of try different things on Crime Lines has really helped me make a show that I really want to make. Stacy says, I love that you prioritize content over marketing. The ideas of guests and themes are really exciting. Amtrak would be fun. Yep, I'm really going to try to step up the live streams. A well, I don't know. I don't want to give anyone any like false, false hope that these are going to be amazing. It's going to be me sitting here in my basement talking. But you know, trying to find things that are kind of a little bit more fun to engage everyone with. Kathleen says, so happy you decided to podcast. I am too. It's really, like, been life-changing, and I, I'm, like, not even being dramatic or hyperbole in saying that. Sarah says, I love the inclusiveness versus competitive attitude. Plenty of podcast ideas and creators. There's room for everyone. Absolutely. There is, I mean, there's room for everyone. The podcast market, if you want to think about it as a business, the podcast market, there are more listeners coming in at all times. So Justin from Generation Y, who's always been a huge supporter of other new podcasts, he, you know, he always says the rising tide lifts all ships. And the podcast tide is rising. Yeah, it's a little bit harder now than it was when I started with Insight because with Insight, people were looking actively looking for new true crime podcasts. There were not enough podcasts for the listeners. So I hooked a lot of you people <laughs> before you knew there were other options out there or there would be other options. Now that there are other options, it's much harder to just be a general true crime show where one person sits in their basement talking and really get a lot of traction. But, but I mean, but it can happen and it's, and it has happened and it keeps happening. And it's not always about building a huge audience or making money. And I mean, obviously, if you make art, you want the most amount of people to experience it as possible, or else I would just not be doing this. You know, I want to have the most listeners possible because I like showing what I've made. But, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't always have to be the metric. And when that is not my metric, then I can help other people making podcasts along the way who might want to get into it answering questions, doing whatever I can. It's hard. When someone sends me a question like, how do I start a podcast? I'm like, that's way too broad, <laughs> way too broad of a question. But I can at least give you resources to look at them. And then when you have a specific question where you say, okay, I read about hosting services 
do you have experience with Podbean? I can then give specific feedback. Military Murders is a podcast who I'm pretty sure I ran her promo. She had some questions that were just easier to do over the phone, hopped on the phone with her. Like, I, it's not, some people are in competition. I'm not. Um, I'm not even in competition with myself. I'm, like, far too lazy for competition. Jill says, I've been listening since Insight, but I like it better with just one host. To me, it seems more personal, like they're talking to me. There is a vibe, because, like, when I listen to Generation Y, I feel like I'm listening to Justin and Aaron talk to each other. Like, I'm eavesdropping on their conversation, which I very much enjoy. But then when it's one person telling me a story, I feel like I'm on the receiving end of the conversation. So it is absolutely like a different vibe um, in that regard. Also, I don't know if you guys have listened to Allie's um, new shows, but if you listen to her narration style, she's very much a narrator. And it's almost like an audiobook, right? And when I'm doing this kind of thing, even when I'm reading, I kind of feel like, okay, so here's what happened. Where I'm 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 doing more casual. I'm not a voiceover person. And in any sense of the word, I'm not a voiceover person. So when Allie would like do her part and she would do this like this narration, which was beautiful, and then I'd be like, okay, and then like and it it was like this back and forth, and I don't think it meshed very well, but we didn't really know that that's where we would end up when we started. So we didn't know that it wouldn't end up meshing in the long run. And then as the show went on, people would make comments like they felt like we were being cold to each other when we didn't we didn't think we were because I think it was that I'd be super conversational then she would go to like the the narration style and it would sound like we weren't jiving. But it's just because our style of delivery was different, not that we were having issues. So I think that absolutely um, played into things that just were not working with Insight. Oh, Simon says, I love Rusty Hinges too. And Danette says, only slightly off topic. Rusty Hinges is one of my favorite podcasts to go to when the daily true crime get too heavy. Thank you for bringing that one to us as well. And Christy says, second favorite podcast after Crime Lines is Rusty Hinges. Uh, one of my longtime listeners, and, you know, Patreon supporter Patrick, he sometimes hops in these chats. He said that it's kind of, it was interesting to him that I write both Crime Lines and Rusty Hinges. And then if you listen to Parcast, I've written for Parcast, and, you know, they have a very specific tone. Like, all of their shows, I don't know, they've kind of expanded. But, like, a year ago, all of their shows kind of sounded the same because, by design, they wanted it to be that way. And so... I wrote for that and Crime Lines and Rusty Hinges, and they're just all so different, you know? And um, it's been, I've written for Court Junkie, where, you know, I've written for Canadian True Crime. You really have to write in someone else's voice, which is a whole different skill set. It's, I can write a Crime Lines episode so quickly because it's in my voice. It's how would I say this? When I'm writing something like for Court Junkie, I have to be like, okay, how would Jillian say this? How would she end this? With Canadian True Crime, she has a very, you guys probably don't hear it necessarily as listeners, but she has a very specific formula to how, how the story un- unfolds. And so I have to be like, okay, where, 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 where does Christy want me to be with this part, you know, and where would she want this? And so it's, it's harder to write for other people, 100%. Rusty Hinges is a little bit easier because Lars isn't going to send me corrections. <laughs> He's just going to record what I send him. So it's a little bit easier that way. Karen says, also a Rusty Hinges fan, love the dry humor and Lars's delivery. I don't know if um, 
if I've ever mentioned how he, the first episode, I think he recorded it three or four times before I decided that I, that he hit the right balance in his voice. At the age of nine, he moved to Oklahoma. And so nine to, you know, he went to college, he lived in Oklahoma. And I said, I need you to dig a little deep (laughs) into like that Oklahoma side of you and bring it out. Whereas, you know, he has such a People have asked him where he's from because they can't quite place his accent because he grew up in Seattle, but his dad had this really, like, Utah accent, and his mom is from Denmark, and she had this strong Danish accent, and then he lived in Seattle and then Tulsa, and so his accent is kind of all over the place. It confuses people, so we kind of had to pick what he was going to do for Rusty Hinges. Kara says, I just love the pieces you have done on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. You're honoring voices that have been long silenced. Thank you. Karen loves that too. I will. De- I mean, I'm continuing that in in 2021. I've actually made a separate spreadsheet so that I make sure that those cases don't get lost in the shuffle of my massive show idea spreadsheet. I'm being very mindful of it going into 2021 as well. So Simon says, I didn't know you wrote for so many other podcasts. Could you possibly suggest your fave one you wrote for someone else? Marcy says that's a good question. Now, my favorite episode that I wrote for someone else would probably be Lyle and Marie McCann. I wrote that for Canadian True Crime. That was one of the the biggest episodes I've ever written for anyone else. Like even even for Crime Lines, it would have been a massive episode. I read a lot of court documents for it. It was very very heavy. The case is very interesting. The Son of the victims read the script before it went out and actually said how impressed he was with the ridiculous amount of detail. (laughs) You guys know me, lots of details, which is something Christy appreciates. Christy wants all those little details. That's why her episodes are always an hour long, at least. But I, I do have a favorite one I wrote for Parcast, and it's on Not Guilty, and it's on Bernie Barron. It's a daycare child abuse case. It's from, you know, the the McMurtin era, the satanic panic era, except this one is that he's gay. And that is what sparked the allegations for the most part. And it just, I mean, it's it's a terrible, terrible story, but it's, it's inter- I mean, it's interesting and I'm very proud of the message that gets out there about how these things happen. False accusations can absolutely ruin a person's life. And I mean, I just recommend. So Not Guilty, it's a two-parter on Bernie Barron. And then Lyle Marie McCann from Canadian True Crime are probably my favorites. I The ones I've written for Court Junkie have been Patreon bonus episodes, like the shorter ones where there's not necessarily as much audio. So it's a lot more you know, m- much more writing heavy, which is more of my my style. I mean, I can pull clips and refer back and make sure I'm not reiterating what you hear in the clip because that's a pet peeve of mine when I'm listening to a podcast and they say, Sarah's mother was concerned. And then you get the clip of the interview where Sarah's mother goes, I was very concerned. And I'm like, okay, well, I know, <laughs> I know. So, So doing the clip ones, I'm so detail oriented to make sure I'm not being redundant that they drive me bonkers. Like, I see, I have transcripts of everything just so I know what I'm doing. So I, I, I prefer doing writing-heavy ones, so I did some Court Junkie Patreon ones. Jill says, I love Canadian true crime. Hearing about things in another country is really interesting, especially when she does stories on Indigenous people. Yes, and Christy's amazing. I don't think people realize how much 
actual journalism she's doing behind her scripts because she isn't airing interviews. But she interviews people and then puts them into her scripts, like I do with a lot of the missing and murdered Indigenous women cases. I talk to the families, but you don't hear their voice on my podcast because that's not my format. Christy does that, and I don't know that people understand or appreciate how how much she does. It's She's great. Not that Canadian true crime needs my help boosting them, but, but Christy's Christy's show is one I always recommend. I definitely recommend it. So, okay, let me get to some of the questions because I have like eight pages of questions. Well, not eight pages of questions, eight pages of my notes on the answers so that I stay on topic. I the So I've gotten three categories of questions. So general true crime questions and then questions about podcasting and then questions about mostly about having a big family. So we'll get to those last. Let's go ahead and do a general true crime first. Kelsey asked me what case sparked my interest in true crime. Laura and Albin also asked about the gateway into true crime. And so when I was in middle school, I would spend, this is like so on brand for me, I would spend my babysitting money on my scholastic book orders. I was always into mysteries. The Westing game, probably even as an adult, I would say is like one of my top 10 favorite books is The Westing Game. I I understand it's a children's book. But when I would order these books from Scholastic, I would almost always get like Christopher Pike, R.L. Stein, Lois Duncan, those fiction thriller books that were aimed for preteens and teens. And then I saw one that was about real life mysteries that I ordered. And some of the mysteries were not true crime. Some were like medical. I think there was probably a UFO one in there. But the first chapter was on Etan Pates, who went missing in 1979, and that is what sucked me in. Because I had read true crime books before, like in middle school, I had already read true crime books. I read, I read like a lot. And the main books we had available in my house, we had like a set of old encyclopedias, and then we had like stacks of paperback true crime books because my mom read them like crazy. So we had more true crime books than we had any other type of book in my house. So I read a lot of them, but most of them were those 80s, 90s style, like, pulp true crime. It was, like, all sensationalism, sometimes gore, very little substance, very little looking into circumstances that may have led to something happening. So you just kind of read them without really processing them or or any anything like that. I mean, they're plot-driven. So when I got this book on mysteries, this was like the first time I read a case that was unsolved, and it was something that you could engage with versus these, you know, more sensationalist true crime books. Renata asked, what case has stuck with me the most? And I'm going to say definitely overall, it was the Marsha P. Johnson case, which I did with insight because while, I mean, there's the true crime aspect of it, what lasted her legacy after is so much more than than her than her death. And so I think that one really sticks with me because I see the lasting impact that she and Sylvia Rivera had on the trans community and on trans rights and on homeless kids who are put out in the in the street because they're trans. So that has been um that one's really stuck with me. But if I look at like really just crime lines cases that I've covered in the last year and a half, two years, 
I'm going to say probably Angela Green, and that's for two reasons. One is that I did talk to her daughter for the episode, and whenever I connect with families, they always leave an impression like that. But I talk to families on cases before and after, and they do leave an impression. But the second reason I think Angela Green's case is in my mind so much is that I live close enough that I pass the street that they lived on a lot. When my daughter's going to dance class at least like six times a week, I pass that street. So I mean, I'm seeing the street name and it's connecting where I am. And so I do think about Angela Green a lot. There is an update in her case where there was another search that recently happened. And I'm going to dig up more information and put that in the next live stream. Christina has asked if I've ever been contacted by families or people involved in the cases and if people have been generally accepting. And then she and Quinn both were asking about getting negative feedback from families or criticism. And I have been contacted, and it's almost always positive. Uh, I did have one person react negatively back in the Insight days to an episode. I'm, I'm pretty sure we had two people react negatively, but only one of them was the one that I researched and wrote. So it's the one that I kind of responded to and engaged with. And the reaction confused me at first because it's an episode I redid for Crime Lines, actually at the request of someone in the family. It was the John Juca case. So when I did it for Insight, someone who was working with or for the appellate defense team, she was upset at the coverage. She reached out. She said she basically thought it was unfair and that I was repeating misinformation. And that surprised me because I think John Juca is wrongfully convicted. I've not been too wishy-washy on that. And usually, when I produce an episode saying I think they're wrongfully convicted, the defense is happy with me. John's appellate attorney tweeted out the episode so that people could listen to it. So I was confused. And even though I could defend my episode point by point, I didn't. I just replied kindly. I said, you know, that was not my intention. I wished her well. I, you know, I always wish people well. I, yeah, I, I just responded kindly and, and openly. Then six weeks later, <laughs> I remember it was like, she didn't respond to my reply. And then later when I had largely not been thinking about it. I got an email from her again. I was a little nervous opening it, but it was actually an apology because when she listened to the episode, she listened on the defensive, which happens, which happens a lot. People are bringing emotions into this. And so when I brought up the case against John, because I give every side I can find, to her, it just sounded louder than the parts where I was discrediting it. And it's a good reason to always be kind when a family member reaches out or a friend or someone close to the case because they are much more affected by this case than I am every day of the week. If the worst thing I am enduring is a terse email, then I'm already interacting with this case from a better place than they are. They are living with this every single day. They feel this case in ways I will never be able to. So whenever I reply, always, 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 I, I keep that in mind. And I did have, kind of debating whether or not I tell this story, 
So I had another show called Impact Statement that is on hiatus for a number of reasons. And that was always done with family involvement because it's an interview show. I narrate and then I play clips of interviews. Always done with family involvement. So you would think, I'm going to get less complaints. That is not the case. I had one person very unhappy with the episode I made that she did the interview for, for a couple of reasons. I fully stand by the episode. I did not present some things that she thought should be presented that there's no evidence of. There's no no reasonable way to present it. Uh, So I left out some things she didn't like. I included some things she didn't like in telling the story. And that's just something that journalists deal with all the time. I stand by my episode. I wasn't going to change it. I wasn't going to re-edit it to, to fit what she wanted. But I still recognize that this was a person in very, very deep pain, pain that I do not understand, like the depths of pain. She needed somewhere to put her anger. And in that moment, I was there. And my episode was there. And if it made her feel better for a minute that she was able to vent that, that she was able to point the finger somewhere, okay, like, I can handle that. That's, I can handle that better than I could handle being in her shoes. So always respond kindly when, when people are upset with my coverage. I generally have the opposite, almost always have the opposite interaction where they appreciate my coverage, that they appreciate that I'm being fair. Usually people mostly appreciate that I was fair and I'm not. I don't use words like monster or animal or anything like that to describe any human being. And I think that resonates with some people who who may feel like they don't hear that, hear that always hear that kind of perspective. So Stacy says, that's a great attitude to have. It's sad to hear when people take it out on you. Yeah, I mean, it's not my favorite part. You know, I have podcast friends who have similar situations that have happened with them too, where they've had to deal with family members or friends who are upset. We can kind of defend ourselves to each other, and then it's easier to say, okay, now that I've said that I know I'm right, I'm going to respond kindly. So I'm going to make the right choice. I'm not going to indulge in my feelings right now because mine aren't the ones that really matter right now. I have friends to go to to vent my stuff. Don't vent it at a victim's family. Absolutely do not do, like, (laughs) do the opposite of that. Get a friend. Get a friend. And that would be my advice to podcasters when they are confronted with family or they are having issues with a family of the victims. Find a friend and complain to them. That That is my advice. Okay, Alice asked if I'm interested in stories from Ireland, and the answer is absolutely yes. I hope to cover a case from Ireland that's been on my radar this year because the trial was this year. It's the Patricia O'Connor case. Um, I just haven't gotten to it yet. I have some cases that are just kind of on my my short list, and they keep getting moved down, and Patricia O'Connor's is one that keeps getting moved around. But I'm definitely interested in more cases from outside the U.S. The thing is, for 2021, I'm mostly going to focus on listener suggestions. So, but if you have a suggestion for me, absolutely send them in. I get I put them all on a spreadsheet so that I can keep up with them. And I even have a section where I write what the case is about. So when I'm scrolling through, I can say, oh, that's a case from Ireland. And I had someone ask about that. 
and that helps bump things up too. I mean, there are really, the suggestions I have gotten, I have to tell you, are amazing. There are so many good ones that I could probably only do listener suggestions and be fine for the year because there are cases that aren't hugely widely known, but also ones that have good information out there that I can make a full episode. I may weave in a few shorter episodes throughout the year to cover some of those cases that don't have as much information but still need coverage. So we'll see how that goes. I tend to I tend to gravitate towards the ones that are going to be like 45 minutes to an hour. Marcy says, I was so impressed with the coverage you did on Girly Chew. I definitely suggest to others to give you suggestions. Thank you. Yeah, Girly Chew case. Why is no one covering that case? Like, I mean, I've seen people cover it since, but when I covered it, I looked, I did a search, and there was very little coverage, and it's such an interesting case. I don't know. I really want to see his psych report. I mean, just Cliff Notes version. I would love to see that. I think there's a lot there that I couldn't even get into just because I don't have enough of the information. If someone had access to those records, you could probably write a lot just on the psychology of that case. Deanna asked if there were any cases that I think they got way wrong or that I have a vastly different theory of. So I said John Juca, wrongfully convicted. The Heidi Allen case that I covered, which is where one brother was convicted and one was acquitted, I absolutely 100% think that was way, 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 way off base and both should have been acquitted. And then on the other hand, the Corin Erstad case, I think Robert Guevara did it. I mean, allegedly did it. Uh, don't sue me. But the jury just didn't have all the evidence, and that's why he was acquitted. But I, I absolutely think that one was wrong. But thinking of cases that I haven't covered, those are cases I've covered on Crime Lines. I am going to say um, I'm probably the only person left on this planet who actually thinks that Maura Murray likely ran into the woods, got lost, and died of exposure. Like, I, I could be wrong. I'm not saying that's definitely what happened, so don't cancel me over this. But I do think it's a possibility that people have just dismissed, and now you can't even discuss it. You can't even say why you think it's a possibility. You can't even talk about it because, like, absolutely, absolutely, you just can't talk about it. So, so okay, Nan. Oh, Nan, I'm on your question now. Um if I think law enforcement has a duty to keep the public informed of the status of investigations, like if a person goes missing for the sake of public safety, like it's a good question and it's something that comes up a lot. Public interest versus preserving the integrity of investigation. It comes up pretty much every time a podcaster sends a FOIA request on a closed case. Uh, I came up with the Barry and Honey Sherman case with the Toronto Star is fighting really hard to open up more files and saying that the public has a right to know. You know, I don't know where the line is, especially when it comes to missing persons. Unless they really do believe an abduction has taken place, then I think there should be some type of updates, particularly if it's a stranger abduction. Usually the updates we get are anniversary updates. And so I spoke two, three years ago, to the detective in charge of my, my local Crime Stoppers, Kansas City Metro Crime Stoppers, about updates. And he said that they usually do anniversary press releases because that's when they can get the media interested in running a piece about it, particularly if the family does something, they can photograph and interview people. 
So if they have an anniversary vigil, that's why you hear about anniversary vigils a lot. It's a way to get eyes back on the case. Media outlets do not have to pick up every police press release if they don't want to. They are not required to. They usually do, particularly for a missing person. They want to keep a good working relationship with the police. But how often can the police or Crime Stoppers run updates and send them to the media and have them say, yes, we're going to devote airtime or newsprint space or website space to this? And so generally what they get are anniversaries. So while I think regular updates would be great, I don't know how feasible they are. The best situation is when the police, the family, or a friend have social media and they use social media to get the updates out. My Patreon episode in December was on Joe Yates, and about it was one of the first cases where social media was being leveraged by the police as much. And being able to use social media, posting updates, makes it a lot easier for people to access that without relying on the media to give up airtime or print space for it. I think the solution would be more updates but either through a police, the police on social media or whoever is representing the family where the police inform them and then they can post the updates. So Albin asked about the shocking number of child abductions in the U.S. versus other countries and if the stats are actually higher here in the U.S., pointing out that child abductions are actually rarely reported in Australia. So the discussion is, is this a case of we're just have more media eyes on it, or we're talking about it more, or are they just more common? And in really thinking about it, I think the main issue is how big the U.S. is. I don't know if, I mean, land size, it's not, you know, bigger than Australia for sure, but it's the third most populated country. So, we have the same number of teenagers in the United States as Australia has total people. So under the age of 18, so 17 and under, we have 73 million people. And according to the Polly Kloss Foundation, about 100 kids a year are kidnapped by strangers in the U.S. Half of them come home alive. So 100 kids is a lot. 50 not coming home is horrific. When we scale it to the population of 73 million children, people under the age of 18, it really isn't as rampant of an issue in the U.S. as it may appear. It's we have more because we have more people. And Australia and the U.S. are actually pretty similar in the number of stranger abductions. And most, lots of countries are like this. It's generally less than 1% of all kidnapping cases. So, okay, so Katie asked me to bring awareness to a specific case, and I'm going to do that really quickly right now um, to get the info out there, but I am going to cover it more in depth during a regular live stream, probably the one next week. And this is Jason Landry. He's a 21-year-old college student. He was driving home for Christmas break in Texas. He left his campus on Sunday, December 13th, then on Monday, December 14th, around 2 in the morning, his father got a call that they found his car crashed in a rural area in Luling, Texas. I promise I'll look up if I'm saying that correctly or not. 
The car was totaled, but Jason was nowhere to be found. His phone, wallet, everything was in the car. They did a massive search, like nine days. Helicopters, dogs, the whole thing. They didn't find any trace of him. Scent dogs did follow his trail from the car to a nearby pond. They drained the pond and didn't find anything. There was a small amount of blood at the scene, but that could have just been injury from the crash, and they honestly don't know if he wandered off or if he was picked up. They don't have any leads that they are making public. The search has been halted until they do have a lead on where to go because they did search so much and so much land already without any anything that they found. And if anyone does have any information, you can call the Caldwell County Sheriff's Office. It's 512-388-6777. So Shauna asked if I feel like no one understands why I'm passionate about true crime. And I feel that way sometimes in my real life, particularly when people outright say that they couldn't handle this information. They're like, oh, true crime, are you sure? Like missing kids, are you? You know, so people kind of, in my real life are like that, but my internet life is mostly true crime podcasters and listeners. So when I'm online, I kind of am in that zone and that's what we're talking about. That's what we're posting. That's what we're sharing. And then I go spend time with people in my real life and realize no one actually wants to hear about (laughs) about what I've been reading that day. So sometimes it is a little bit of a balance. Not um, Not everyone loves to hear about my thoughts on true crime, but occasionally my book club has read true crime books, but it's a it's a literary book club more. So like we're not reading anything too fluffy. So like Killers of Flower Moon was one we read, which I love that book. So then then I have an excuse to kind of slide some things in. Anna asks, why do we find true crime so intriguing? And I've always said that I think it's because it's an anomaly. Things that are different than the norm stimulate our brain. So whenever people are like, oh, true crime is entertainment, I'm like, well, I'm not going to go with the word entertainment. Things that are different are stimulating to our brains, no matter what it is. Most of us will not be touched closely by a murder or a kidnapping or an unsolved mystery. And even if we are, it's one very specific set of circumstances, not the thousands of stories that are out there. So this allows us to some degree to experience and think about and consider, like, I mean, I like the psychology of things, to some degree, the darker points of life without actually risking our own safety or becoming involved in it. It's like the same reason we like high-stakes drama shows or reality TV shows about really rich people who buy things we would never spend that money on. It's a glimpse at a life that we don't actually lead with none of the risk and just the interest. It's just interesting. So that is, that's my view. And those are actually all the general true crime questions that have been sent in. So I am going to just see, I think I missed a couple comments in there. Marcy says, when people hear I like true crime, they automatically assume serial killers, but that's not my interest at all. Okay, so Marcy, that actually plays on what I what I was I'm thinking about in regards to stimulating to our brain. People assume serial killers for me too. I get memes and things about serial killers sent to me all the time thinking, oh, I'm sure you love this. And I'm like, 
serial killers are not that interesting to me because it's the same story over and over again. It's abusive childhood, head injury, psychopath. Like, there's not a lot of variation there. So when it's a case where there's variation, then I'm interested. And so there are maybe three serial killers that I find their stories somewhat interesting because of there's something else to talk about that we haven't already talked about a hundred times. Okay, so Sydney asked me about how advertising works on podcasts. So let's move into the questions about podcasting specifically. Asked, you know, do I find people? Do they find me? How does this work? So I use an ad agency to represent me, and they basically do the work of finding sponsors. They work with the so brands all use ad agencies and then podcasters use ad agencies. Yeah, working directly with a brand isn't something I typically do. Um unless I'm working sometimes I'd work directly with like a podcast, like Parcast would want to run an ad on my show. I'd work directly with them. I've worked directly with Sony. But for the most part, we're working with ad agencies. So I don't really do anything. And it it usually works out. They handle the negotiation contracts. They bill. When they get paid, they pay me my cut. Usually it works out. Like I said, I'm having some issues from this year. I've had issues with ad agencies before. They've always paid, but some have paid very, very late. When I know that the, the ad company almost surely paid them, So sometimes it doesn't work out, and then you just don't work with that ad agency again. Currently, I'm working with someone called AdvertiseCast, who I really, really like. I still have control over what ads I run if if it's in my voice. So if it's not in my voice, I didn't approve it specifically. I just opt out of certain categories like politics. But like you hear a McDonald's ad, I am not endorsing McDonald's. I would, but I'm not. Um, Those are just ads. If it's in my voice, I it is one that I specifically said yes to. They never make me voice an ad for any product that I opposed. And not with Crime Lines. Um, I haven't had this issue, but with Insight, we did turn down two ads. One was for a vaping thing, and we just do not promote vaping. And the other was some type of supplement, but they not a vitamin. I'm totally into vitamins, but this was a like specifically like supplemental treatment for cancer. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) we're not doctors. We don't endorse something that's going to treat a very specific illness like that. If you have those claims, I'm not the person to be backing them up. So uh, yeah, I don't do those. You know, I also get to decide how many ads go into my show. If anyone's noticed, my show tends to be lighter than most shows that are my length. So you know, a 45 to 60 minute long episode would generally be two ad breaks, maybe three with one to two ads per break. I listened the other day to a 20 minute podcast that was put out by a major podcast company. So the host didn't get a say in anything, but the podcast company had two ads in the beginning and then two breaks of two ads each, and then another like promo at the end in a 20-minute podcast. And that's their prerogative. They're making more money than me, so definitely not going to judge. But I've just decided for myself, 
I want a different kind of balance between ad revenue and listener experience. So I'd probably be more successful if I was more money motivated, but I'm not. I'm going to play an ad or two at the beginning of the show before before even the intro music. Those are always um, pre-recorded ones. Then I have one ad break about a third of the way through the episode. Now, if my episode does go over an hour, I will sometimes put in a second break, but that second break will never have more than one ad in it. So sometimes you'll get two in one break and one in the other. Generally, you're not hearing that much. Most of my episodes just have one break with two ads in it, and that is my choice, and I would never sign with an ad agency. Well, I won't say never. I cannot force, I can't see myself signing with an ad agency that would require me to put in more ads. So if you are asking this question kind of as a podcaster, I would recommend um, if you're looking at ad agencies, make sure that they respect that you have final say on everything, ad placement, which ads you run, and how many ads you run. Sometimes they want requirements because the more ads you run, the more cut they get. But I'm sorry, they have to deal with me not doing that. So, (laughs) And Kara says, I love that you're equally as concerned about listener experience as you are with ad revenue. Ads are super annoying, but I get they're necessary to fund the podcast. I like that you don't overburden the episodes with them. I always say I'm a podcast listener first, and that is so true in how I run my show. I'm I'm not going to do something that I don't want happening when I listen to a podcast. So, you know, I'm fine when a podcast has an ad break. I'm fine when they have two ad breaks. I will not be going back to this podcast I listened to the other day that just was 20 minutes long and had all like tons and tons of ads because it just wasn't fun listening because by the time I really got into the story, it was like and what they were saying, it was a break again. And it just really disrupted the show and my enjoyment of the show. And it's not that I have a thing against ads, obviously not, but just didn't work for me. And some people, the content is worth it to power through those. I do the same thing on YouTube. On YouTube, when you open a video, there's like a little yellow marker that tells you where all the ads are. And and if I see, if I, if I open one and I see a ton of little yellow dots on the timeline, I just click off. I'm not going to watch five minutes of content to get two minutes of ads to watch five minutes of content. It's just, it's not really um, the experience I want, and it's not one I want for you to have either. So I'm kind of stingy with the ads. So, okay, Elizabeth asked, what is one thing I like about being a podcaster best and one thing I like the least? And honestly, in making the podcast I like the most is research and writing. I like interacting with people on social media. And the one thing that I like the least was actually easier because there's so much that I like. And then there's just a few things I really don't like. But the thing I like the least is 100% the policing of my voice, my accent, my tone, all of that, my pausing. The way I talk is the way I talk. And whether someone likes or dislikes it, that's subjective. But I get the impression when people express their dislike to me is that they feel like their opinion is an objective fact, and therefore I should listen to what they have to say, which I always listen, but then I must take it and adopt it because they are correct. They know what is right and wrong in my podcast, and if I fixed it, I would do much better. 
accommodating individual people's preferences is just not something I could do even if I wanted to. I literally have tens of thousands of people who listen to the show. In the last 30 days, I had more than 100,000 unique impressions on the show, meaning more than 100,000 people listened to some episode of my show, individuals. Can I listen to 100,000 people tell me that I pause for too long or I pause too often or I don't pause enough for whatever? Like, I mean, if I hear the same thing over and over and over again and it is something I can fix, then that, that makes sense, right? But certain things are just not fixable. This is what I sound like. I grew up in New England. I live in the Midwest. I have this mismatch, like whatever accent. It is what it is. I mean, I generally tell people when they're like, your show's terrible, I can't listen to it because you sound terrible. I just say, well, I hope you find a show that fits your preferences because there will be. Like, you don't have to like my show. You don't have to like my voice. You don't have to listen. I don't mind getting feedback. It's such a line. It's it's a line between get like being open to feedback, but also being like, okay, look, I can't fix it. So it's not really a beneficial conversation for either of us to have about my accent. Swindled posts, emails, and and comments and private messages he gets that are super rude. I don't publish them, but I still get them. So Nan says, I love how you talk. Yours is one of the most professional sounding, if you know what I mean. Thank you. And Noelle says, I love your way of storytelling and how you talk. I do appreciate that. I figure people who like it will listen to it. I also find that a a lot of people don't like a lot of voices. It's just pretty normal. But you, like, what do you do if you meet somebody in real life who's like, whose voice you just don't like? You you just kind of suck it up and you get over it, right? And the longer you listen to it and the more familiar it becomes, the less you notice the things you don't like about it. So sometimes, you know, all people have to do is listen to a couple episodes and they'll they'll get over it. But, you know, if my content isn't enough for them to do, give that time to get used to my voice, that's fine too. If Then it's just not a good fit. I mean, you can delete my podcast from your feed without telling me. Like, that's totally a bit. It's totally an option. Susie says, I hate on Facebook when they go in and say I hate female podcasters because their voices is not constructive or productive. No, it's it's not. And it happens a lot. It's rooted in misogyny and not that you're aware of it, but because you have been conditioned by society to prefer information being presented by men. And so because of people like Barbara Walters and Katie Couric, more people will listen to my podcast. But because we can actually name a handful of female journalists who were anchors in a major network in a primetime slot, because we can actually name them off the top of our heads because there's so few of them, that's why I also get people who are like, I can't listen to your voice because you're a woman. Okay, so Tanya asked about where to purchase background music. And I will tell you that there are a few options. I always recommend going to Blue Dot Sessions. They're a fantastic group. They sell pretty inexpensive license packaging to podcasts. They do allow a limited amount of their music to be used for free, but they have a wide variety and they're really great to work with. And they've really customized what they have to podcasts because so many podcasts were using their stuff. So I like supporting people in their music. 
Audio Jungle is a place where you can purchase licensed music, but there is free music out there. It's called Creative Commons. That is the license. You can do a Google search for it. Make sure you read and understand the details of the license because a lot of Creative Commons is out there only for non-commercial projects. So a presentation for school. The second you start making money, you can no longer use that music without paying for a license. So definitely keep that in mind. If you think your podcast is a hobby, you don't know what's going to happen next. It could grow into something else like mine did. You could get a sponsor. You could set up a Patreon. And then you're going to have to go back and edit out all the non-commercial Creative Commons music you used or track down the music and buy a license. So the best bet is to just pay for a license from the start or make sure any Creative Commons music you are using is stuff that is allowed for commercial usage. So the theme for Crime Lines is completely free to use. Like you could start a podcast tomorrow and use the music. I do not own it. Person who owns it is Scott Buckley. It is used with attribution only because I believe in paying artists I do donate to him every year the equivalent of a license, even though I don't legally have to. It doesn't give me anything. He does have a donate form on his website, so I use that. And I send him what it would cost me to license the music through, like, Audio Jungle. So um, that's always an option, too. Just because you take the music for free doesn't mean you you, you can't pay. You uh, absolutely can pay for it. So, you know, I believe in paying people. Elizabeth asked what my favorite podcast is besides Crime Lines and Rusty Hinges, which, of course, would be the top two. And it's always hard to pick a favorite. Like, my OG favorites are, like, Generation Y, Already Gone, and Court Junkie. Obviously, I've already sung Canadian True Crime's praises. Currently, a newer podcast, though it's maybe on its fourth season, so it's not that new. But Windled is a newer podcast that I got into that I really like. I haven't had a lot of time to try out new shows because I'm, like, behind on my existing shows. So I'm trying to think maybe I need to start listening. Instead of listening to every single episode of every show that I have, I tend to listen topically, but maybe I need to do that even more so so that I can get some new shows in there because there are so many great new creators out there that I would like to listen to and support. So if you've heard someone's promo on my show, I've listened to at least one of their episodes because I do not run a promo for a show unless I've listened. Because I feel like if I'm running a promo, I'm giving you some type of endorsement of it. I've had to turn down some because I just haven't had time to listen. And I don't want to tell, I don't want to promise someone that I'm going to listen and I'm just don't get to it. So if you've heard my promo, I have listened to the show and I enjoyed it. But often I've, like, only listened to one episode just to decide if I was going to promo it or not. Okay, so there are a few questions that I got that are on more a personal side, and almost all of them have to do with all the people in my house. So Cassie asked about my family work-life balance because she has two kids, including a new baby who's adorable and doesn't know how I do it with so many kids. And Savannah asked basically the same thing. To explain that, I kind of have to explain our structure. We have, Lars and I have six children. We have been married for a very long time. We got married very young. Four of our kids are older. Um, The oldest is 21, almost 22. 
Uh, we have a 19-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 15-year-old. So they are, they have needs in a very different way, but not the, not the super, I don't have to supervise them. So they can literally just move about the house on their own and I can work, no problem. Now, my younger two, our younger two, are seven and three. And the main balance that we have struck is that we send the three-year-old to daycare. So, you know, I mostly made insight during the nights and weekends and during nap times with the kids because we split the workload. So I was only researching and writing two episodes a month. So it really wasn't that bad. But now I'm doing four a month in the main feed, one Patreon episode, one Rusty Hinges episode, a couple of live streams, and there's no way I could do that evening and weekends. So right now, the best thing that happens is that daycare remains open. But it's a little tricky at the moment because my seven-year-old, is a, he's in first grade, Graham, he is doing virtual school. So I have to sit next to him and make sure that he's logged into class at the right time. He does his offline work rather than plays Minecraft and more or less pays attention. By the time he's done with school, I have maybe an hour, hour and a half before daycare pickup. So what I really focus on is doing research in the morning and taking notes while he's doing his school because I can do that and get interrupted. And then my oldest son, he is in his last year at KU. He's living at home. So a few times a week, he basically sits next to Graham and does his own schoolwork and makes Graham focus. And then that gives me time to go write or record. I also work nights and weekends still. Um, I record a lot, like at 11 at night when the house is somewhat quiet. Right now, Lars is home from work. He's working from home until probably at least the summer. But when he has to be on, like in a meeting at a set time, he has to be there. So he definitely helps when he can. He's often doing dishes while like listening to a meeting on his on his headset. But he's he's working. So, but the it's the flexibility of podcasting that makes it work into our life. Like if I had a traditional nine to five and my husband did, we would have crashed and burned by May with the way things have gone this year. Absolutely. So Jamie asked how often we grocery shop and how many refrigerators do we have? So we grocery shop, I mean, about every two weeks, either Lars or I go and sometimes we go together and we stock up on shelf stable and freezer items and then we do a run for fresh stuff here and there as we need it. We have a large fridge. We have a huge deep freeze, though. That's that's like the that's the big thing. We need that space. We can't order takeout. Have you ever ordered takeout for like eight people, and like six of them adult sized? So, like Costco orange chicken, that frozen orange chicken is delicious. If you ever need an easy meal, we kind of keep space in the deep freeze for those convenience meals on the nights I don't want to cook. You know, within the next year, two of our kids will likely move out, so we'll almost be down to buying more of a normal amount each week. Carly asked, when life returns to some version of normal, where do I want to travel first? And I'm going to say probably Connecticut to see my family. I have this vision that we're going to fly everyone to Portland, Maine, and then we're just going to do like a New England sightseeing tour because I grew up like on the coast of Connecticut, so we just go all the way down south to the coast of Connecticut and then, like, take the train to New York City for the day, and then fly home out of Hartford. And can I tell you how many vacations I've planned during quarantine? It's a whole lot easier to plan vacations when you can't 
go on them because then you don't have to worry about how much they cost. And it's magic. I have like magical vacations planned that we'll never go on because they're way too expensive. Alexa asked about my hobbies or interests outside of true crime, which is um, watch a lot of makeup tutorials on YouTube. That's kind of my relaxation. A lot of not just like tutorials, but like reviews on makeup. It's like soothing to me. Um, I also like history, so I'll watch or read things related to history. I scroll through social media. I am a huge current events news consumer, and I actually have my Twitter following is pretty trimmed down to people who tweet out about certain topics. And so I am keep up with the news on those topics by following those Twitter accounts. It's kind of nice because when I go to a regular news thing, it's like pandemic news or election news I have to scroll to find anything else. Where on Twitter, it's curated to the point where I see other things. So the last question sent in was from Kara, and it asked if I'm a reader and what are some of my favorite books or genres. And I am a reader. My favorite genre is literary fiction. If a book club would read it for discussion, that's what I'm reading. So um, Homegoing by Ya Jesse is absolutely one of my, like, 100% favorite books. I can't even believe it's a debut novel. Um, This year, I read and loved The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, I think you say her last name. Books I read a while ago, more are that I, I just like wrote out a bunch of books I could think of. One was Away by Amy Bloom. I read that probably 10 years ago, and it's really stuck with me. Snowflower and the Secret Fan by Lisa C. Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward. I read that, I read that fairly recently. Then um, Circe by Madeline Miller was something that I read that I didn't necessarily think I would like because it didn't sound like something I would like. It's basically like um, a novelization using Greek mythology and using Circe as the main character. I'm not really into fantasy, and so it kind of sounded a little a little bit like something I wouldn't like, but I read it. I'm pretty sure I read it for book club, and it was amazing. I really, really loved it. So my second favorite genre, which is the one I go to when I want something that's either not going to make me think too hard and or not going to make me depressed because a lot of the literary fiction I like is frankly depressing. I go to mystery books. I really like Leanne Moriarty. She wrote Big Little Lies, which was the first book I read by her. Now that's like her best book. So everything else has not been as good, but it's still fun. They're fun. They're, they're written in a way that doesn't make me roll my eyes every five seconds. I like Gillian Flynn. She wrote Gone Girl. But I also really like traditional detective fiction. I like Agatha Christie. I have I like her short stories and her full novels. I actually have a signed picture of David Suchet, who played Hercule Poirot, like framed in my living room. So Agatha Christie, 100%. But I just started on Rebecca Lavoie's recommendation, Anthony Horowitz's um, books. First book I read was called The Word is Murder, and it was so good that I actually have, like, immediately bought three more, like, immediately. And then I, like, Yonesbo, he is Norwegian. It's like a Nordic. Yeah, he's Norwegian. The stories are darker. So um, I know Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, that series got really popular. But that's kind of that Nordic gore and dark and... And, like, you read it and you're like, I thought they said Scandinavians are, like, the happiest people in the world. Their books do not represent that. But <laughs> their books are kind of dark and gory in a 
little bit more intense. So Yo Nesbo is actually one of my favorites. I don't really love Stieg Larsson that much. He kind of writes in circles, well, did write in circles, but Yo Nesbo is a little bit more straightforward. So that is everything. I think, did I get the bottom of my, yeah, the last question I had on my list was about what kind of books I liked. I read so much to make the podcast, um, all sorts of documents and books and stuff that a lot of times I don't feel like reading when I have downtime because I just read all day. But I, I'm always glad when I push myself, especially to read some fiction, because I really do like fiction. So that is all I have for this. And I hope everyone had a good holiday season. And like I said, I will try to, I'm going to go live, not going to try, I will go live at some point on New Year's Eve in the evening time, probably six or seven central time. And I'll go live so that we can have a drink together and uh, send out the year.